Hey, Dr. Gipp, thanks for letting us come over on your day off. I appreciate it. Oh, yeah, it's no problem. You remember Nathan from the other day at the Bible study? Yep, why don't you guys come on in, okay? Hey, thank you. All right. Well, Doc, Nathan and I have been talking since the other day at the Bible study about the whole King James issue, and he's had some questions for me that, you know, I'm not very equipped to answer, and I thought, who better to bring him to than to you? And so I was hoping maybe you could answer some of these questions. Yeah, sure. Well, Sam, thank you so much for letting us come over. Like Justin said, we've been talking, and I can tell just from last night that you know, you have a passion for God's Word and for helping people. And uh, I just have some sincere questions. To me, the King James issue is, is almost, it's almost ridiculous. It's like you lined up all the Bibles on a big shelf, and then you took a, a dart and you just threw it. And that's almost what it feels like to me. Like, that's how you decided that the King James Bible, that's the one. Uh, and it, it's, I just can't subscribe to that. In other words, you're kind of a logical person, you kind of reasonable person, and like you said, believing the King James Bible is a perfect word of God seems, it's just re too ridiculous for you to sign on to, correct? I'd say so. I mean, God gave us a brain, He gave us logic, and I don't think He'd ask us to just blindly step into something like that. Now, you've trusted Christ, correct? Yeah, that's right. And you believe that you're going to fly through the air at the sound of a trumpet, and you're not going to have an airplane. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's ridiculous. Uh, do you believe this? Do you believe that somebody actually walked on top of water at one time, Nathan? Yeah. Yeah, and that's ridiculous. You think somebody walked up to the Red Sea, hit it with a stick, and that it parted, and several million people crossed the next day on dry ground? Yeah, and you also probably believe that manna fell six days a week for 40 years out in the desert and fed him? If you stop and think about it, you tell that to any lost person, and it all sounds ridiculous. Do you believe this? Do you believe that that they murdered Jesus Christ and that three days after he was buried, three days and three nights later, he came back to life and walked out of the tomb and is alive right now? Yeah. Right, do you understand how ridiculous that is? And that he, 2,000 years ago, paid for your sins with his death and his blood when you weren't even a thought at that time, right? Yeah. But you believe these by faith. You have faith, Correct. And yet when it comes to the, to the Bible, this King James Bible being the Word of God, all of a sudden, kind of like your knees go weak. And here's what I tell people. Believing the King James Bible is the absolute perfect Word of God is ridiculous. It is. But it's way down on a long list of ridiculous things that we believe. I don't understand how you can believe something so ridiculous that you're going to fly through the air and you can't believe something that a book sitting on this table is perfect. This is the easy one. That's a way of looking at it. Yeah, it is. It is. We all, Christians, we sign on to the ridiculous. What the world calls ridiculous, we call miraculous. It's when somebody doesn't have a faith, the faith to believe in the miraculous, they call it ridiculous. You believe that God inspired the Bible perfect in the original, correct? Yeah. And then you believe that that same God somehow lost the power to preserve it, even though he promised when he said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. And I'm going to tell you what's ridiculous, to think that God inspired a book and then didn't or couldn't preserve it. Inspiration without preservation is a divine waste of time. I'm not against the King James Version. I think it's a beautiful translation, and I even use it from time to time. What I'm against is King James onlyism. What if I tell you this? Nathan, you've convinced me. I believe there's mistakes in the King James Bible. I no longer believe the King James Bible is perfect. What would you think? probably think maybe you're onto something here. Maybe you yeah. finally <laughs> come to a realization. Yeah. But now let me finish it. Nathan, I no longer believe the King James Bible is a perfect word of God. I believe the English Standard Version 
is the preserved word of God. I think that's what he was talking about in Psalm 12, 7. And if all of us King James Bible believers, if we today threw out our King James Bible and picked up any modern translation, ESV, NIV, New American Standard, New King James, Living Bible, whatever, doesn't matter which one. If we threw out the King James and picked up a modern translation and said, this is the perfect word of God, tomorrow, everybody that's anti-King James would be anti that version because they're not against the King James. They're against the thought that there's a perfect Bible because if there's a perfect Bible, they're going to have to be in subjection to it. And if it's not, there's no perfect Bible, then the Bible is in subjection to them. I appreciate your point of view, your argument, but to me, there's just too many questions about the King James Version itself for me to believe that it's the perfect word of God. Let me explain something, Nathan. You know, there are people that have questions because they want to get answers. And there are people that have questions because they want to have questions. And I've found there are some people, you answer the, you answer some people's questions and they say, oh, thank you. That really explained it. And then you show somebody else and they just ask another question. Now, let me show you the dangerous position that you're in. Let's set this over here. Now, that apple is a Christian. You're a Christian, right? You're saved. I, this is a Christian who believes there's a perfect Bible on this planet. When that, that person right there, when they go to the Bible, they go to exalt the Lord. In fact, the very belief that the Bible exists exalts the Lord, that it's been preserved perfect. So you have this, this Christian who believes the Bible is perfect. This guy, he's a lost man. Uh, he could be any number of the people who've written books thinking they're showing a contradiction in the Bible. The only reason this guy goes to the Bible is to show something wrong with it, to find a mistake. No, this is you. You belong here because you're saved. But you approach the Bible just like the lost man does. There, there are saved men who only go to the Bible and they want to show mistakes in it. They want to show why it's not perfect. Nathan, you belong over here. What are you doing over here? I'm not big on throw, showing videos for every situation, but I thought that those were helpful and, uh, and well done. And so we will, uh, so I showed them. Um, Psalm 119, verse 160 is just where we're going to start tonight. This is going to be a lot more teaching versus preaching, uh, but uh, I'm going to do what I can to um, get through this. And uh, I, I think we'll, we'll let this uh, message tonight be the last one in this little mini series, and then next week we'll be back into the actual Baptist beliefs. But I do uh, believe it has been valuable and profitable to discuss this. Um, and I would invite you and encourage you to do your own study on this and to come to your own conclusions. Um, you know, I I don't want you just to simply take all that I say and and uh, and and and. Be content with that, although you're welcome to. Um, but I wouldn't, like I said, invite you to do your own study. Um, be careful, though. There is a lot of information out there that is false, and uh, they would. The other side would probably say our side is false. But uh, but be careful as you study to make sure that you're uh, getting the right information and accurate truth. Psalm 119, verse 160, is where we're going to just uh, kind of do our launching point here. Um, it says this, Thy word is true 
from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. And with that, let's have a word of prayer, and uh, we'll uh, get started with this message tonight. Lord, thank you for uh, the opportunity to discuss this very important topic. Uh, help us, Lord, to have the right uh, understanding of it and, and also the right attitude about it. Um, I pray, Lord, that you would guide our thoughts tonight and, again, open our hearts. Help us, Lord, to uh, see the see what's being said and, and listen to what's being said. And, and uh, uh, Lord, to make, make a wise choice uh, regarding the Bible version that we use individually. And we'll thank you for all you do in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so far in this uh, mini-series, we've tried to understand the terms. That was the first message, understanding the terms. We uh, looked at uh, terms like inspiration, the fact that God breathed His Word in the, uh, in the original manuscripts through the uh, backgrounds, the strengths, the weaknesses, the personalities of the different human authors. Um, and then we uh, talked about illumination, if you recall. That was as we're reading God's Word, and, and uh, it makes sense to us. That's God illuminating our minds and hearts and kind of turning the light on uh, to say, this is what it means. Uh, we looked at translation, basically taking one, uh, one the, the manuscripts, the original manuscripts, and translating them into a different language. And the one we're talking about here is the, uh, the English language. Um, and then we talked about the word canonization, basically how the Bible was assembled and put together. And uh, we looked at that very briefly. And then really the all-important term, preservation, and that's really what this series is about, is the fact that God promised that He would preserve His Word, and, uh, and by faith we believe that He did. Again, none of us were, uh, were there to see all the steps of preservation, right? No one was there. Uh, how many were alive in uh, 1611? Would you raise your hand? All right, some of us feel like we were, because it's like, man, my body is, feels like I was uh, around in 1611, but, um, but none of us were there. So we basically have to take what we see that has been recorded in history and, and God's promise that he would preserve his word, and then by faith, uh, choose the translation based on that. And, uh, and hopefully, uh, we'll land on the King James Version, not just because that's what I happen to like. Uh, but because that's what the um, that's what the history and and uh, it all points to, all right? So that's what we talked about the first week, and then last Sunday night. Hopefully, we understand the trouble that this issue presents. If you recall, there's trouble with doctrine. This isn't just a preferential issue. It's not just a uh, well. Let's just kind of pick one that's kind of hip and happening that all the cool churches are using. Um, no, no. This is a this is far beyond just what's popular and what, what everybody seems to like, this is an important deal because it deals with doctrine. And we looked at several different uh, passages in the Bible um, and, uh, and how, they're, how they're translated into the English uh, and the King James. And then we, we looked at other versions and how a lot of the other versions do dilute these doctrines. They don't necessarily delete them necessarily, but they dilute them. And, uh, you know... Uh, we want to make sure that the, the doctrine is clear and uh, presented well. Um, okay, and so we saw also the trouble with doubt. 
And uh, remember, we talked about one of Satan's tactics uh, that from the very beginning has been to cast doubt upon God's word. And, and uh, we saw how uh, sometimes the, the devil is able to do that here with this issue. And some of these uh, modern translations are casting doubt on the accuracy, the availability. Remember, some of the verses are even missing from some translations. And even lengthy passages are missing from translations. Um, so we're not even sure if we have the Bible um, with some of these translations. And so Satan cast doubt with the accuracy, the availability, and the assurance of the Word of God. We also tr- saw the trouble with division. And uh, this can be a very divisive issue. Um, it can be a very, uh, uh, very tense issue uh, for churches. But once again, I want to be clear that while we want to have the right stand on this issue, we also need to have a gracious spirit to be like our Savior who was filled with grace and truth. Uh, we need to have the right stance, but we need to have the right spirit and to be gracious. And, um, you know, when, for instance, some of my family members don't use the King James, does that mean I blast them out of the water? I take my bazooka over there when I go visit their house and say, you're not a King James? <laughs> Actually, <laughs> right? No, I don't do that. I love them in the Lord. I love them as family members. But as a church, we need to make a decision. And uh, we have decided on the King James, and we want to be firm and courageously stand for that. Uh, but we can be gracious and have Christian fellowship with other believers who do not use the same version we do. Um, So we want to make sure that we have the right stance, but also the right spirit. All right, tonight we want to try to tackle understanding the text. You see, in a nutshell, the main reason we hold to the King James Version is twofold. Primarily the text in which it was translated from and the method of which it was translated. And we'll talk about both of those uh, tonight. And uh, we have a visitor in the church tonight. It is a four-wheel drive little Jeep, I think. (laughs) Not to draw too much attention, but anyway, too late. Um, uh, But before we get to the outline tonight, I want to show you something, or actually I want to ask the children something, okay? My children are allowed to answer because we we were talking about this last night in in our Bible time, but so I kind of stole some of my thunder for them. But any of the other children are welcome to answer this question. Okay, raise your hand if you know it. Don't just put it out. Raise your hand. What was the name of the young man who killed Goliath? Anybody know? Anybody know? Yes, sir. David killed Goliath. Are you sure? You positive? He's positive. Okay. Well, we read about that right in 1 Samuel chapter number 17. Well, if you would, go in your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter number 21, 2 Samuel chapter 21. And look in verse number 19. If you have a King James, this is how it will read. And there was again a battle in Gob with the Philistines where Elhanan, the son of Jeor Regum, a Bethlehemite, 
slew the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the staff of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. So here in the King James in 2 Samuel 21 and verse number 19, Elhanah kills the brother of Goliath. But let's show on the screen here what the English Standard Version says. And there was, again, war with the Philistines at Gob, and Elhanan, the son of Jeor Origim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. What? I was told all the way through growing up that it was David that killed Goliath, not Elhanan. Well, it was indeed David, um, but what, what, what happened here, and we'll, we'll get into the reason here in a moment. We'll, get, we'll come back to this, uh, this little uh, thought here in a moment, this little passage, and, and explain why the difference here. But when people sometimes, lost people, will say, well, there's contradictions in the Bible. Friend, I'm telling you in the King James Version, there's no contradictions. But in the modern translations, here's one right here. And so for a lost person, they can take this and say, well, see, I thought David was the one who killed Goliath. But right here it says, Elhanan struck down Goliath the Gittite. All right. We'll come back to this here in a little bit and kind of give a little explanation on, on uh, why the King James says that and why this one doesn't. All right, so let's get into the outline tonight very quickly and uh, see if we can't be uh, brief with this message. I will do what I can here. Number one, the conflict between the texts. Conflict between the texts. And if you were here on the first, uh, the, the first night of this, uh, two weeks ago, uh, we mentioned that there were 450 translations, 450 plus English translations of the Bible. And again, if you were here for that, you probably remember some of the video that was shown that night. And, and uh, it was Dr. Gipp there who said, who said, you know, there's not 300 plus Bibles. There's not, there's not even a dozen Bibles. There's really only two Bibles. And uh, because each of these texts, um, there's really two texts, uh, two excuse me, two sources of text uh, that uh, these Bibles are translated from. And so we want to just briefly talk about them tonight. Boy, there is, these are just two of the resources uh, that uh, go into great detail on, on each of the issues here. Um, there's no way I'm going to read through all this to you guys. And uh, to digest all this, and uh, put it in a real quick synopsis has been difficult to say the least. Um, so I'm just going to basically give you really just the, the highlight points of this topic. There is so much to dive into individually, and I would, again, encourage and invite you to do that. Um, and uh, you can come look at these uh, different uh, resources here after church and uh, look them up on Amazon or whatever and, and get them for yourself. But uh, first of all, the... The, the two texts that uh, all these translations come from are, first of all, the received text. And uh, this one can be traced to the historical record of the true church. And uh, by the way, 
This is the one that um, uh, this is the one that the King James has been translated from is the received text. And then secondly is the critical text, and that one's traced to a relatively few obscure manuscripts. So those are the two texts, and basically all the Bibles come from one of those two sources. Uh, let me just kind of cover this here. Practically speaking, there are only two Bible texts from which all English Bible versions are sourced. The received text can be traced to the historical record of the true church, and the critical text is traced to a relatively few obscure manuscripts. The critical text introduced changes based on 45 out of 5,255 manuscripts. These 45 texts disagree amongst themselves in over 5,600 places, but because of their age, were determined to be more accurate. And so the critical text, that's what this critical text is. And by the way, really all of them, not all of the modern translations, but a vast majority of the, um, of the uh, modern translations come from the critical text. There are a few that um, are, differ slightly from the King James that are from the received text. But the two most prominent ancient manuscripts are Vaticanus and uh, Sinaiticus. These texts were found in the 1800s and presumed to date back to the 4th century. They disagree with themselves over 3,000 times in the Gospels alone, and both show signs of corruption, clear signs of corruption. And so the critical text is kind of filled with all of these disagreements and all of these errors, and yet this is where a lot of our modern Bible translations come from. And so you just kind of scratch your head and say, why would you want a Bible that comes from those from that particular source. Now, I think a lot of a lot of Christians are just ill ill informed and don't really understand the issue, don't really understand this um, this situation. But uh, but that is the case. All right. Uh, next thought here: Constantine von T Oh boy, Tischendorf. Thank you. Yes, Tischendorf. The man who found Sinaiticus had a preconceived bias against the received text and created a text with thousands of changes based upon one manuscript. Do you see the danger with some of this? Uh, Westcott and Hort, uh, these two guys, and we're going to get into talking about them here in a moment. But these two guys privately introduced and later published a new Greek text in the late 1800s that was based upon the earlier work of Tischendorf. And so with thousands of changes, I mean, it's that, it's that telephone game played out, taking the word of God, and uh, generations later, we have something quite corrupted. Uh, and then the last thought here, the critical, or the character of the critical text is flawed, and the logic behind it reaches many illogical conclusions. All right, I have a couple uh, handouts for you. The white one is, uh, says two streams of Bibles here. On the left, you'll see the original New Testament manuscripts. This is the inspired Word of God that God inspired uh, these writers to write. The manuscripts were assembled, and uh, these were the originals. 
And then it goes on down through this process uh, of preservation, really, if you keep going straight down to where we have the King James Version in 1611. But then you see the corrupted manuscripts as they kind of are, are pushed to the, to the right a little bit uh, there on the paper. And, uh, and that's where we get a lot of the modern translations. And this is where we get the Westcott and Hort Greek New Testament in 1870. And then we get the Revised Version in 1881, the Revised Standard Version in 1946. And then we get the New International Version in 1973, and on and on it goes. And, uh, and really, of those 450-plus English manuscript or Bible versions, uh, a, good, a good majority of them come from that, that corrupted stream there. And so, and you remember, you, you've seen this, right? Where you, you have two lines, and one line is off one degree. And you know, four feet down the road... Not a big difference. Four miles down the road, that one degree, well, you're a little further away now from where you were. 40 miles, 400 miles, and you get further and further further away from where you were. And, uh, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> such is the case here with these corrupted manuscripts. As time goes on, the more... The more these guys think that they have the ability to change it and to make it more palatable, make it more understandable, make it, and they become the authority here rather than uh, letting God direct and guide and being careful. Uh, certainly all of them have good intentions, but, um, but at the same time, well, not all of them had good intentions, to be honest. Um, not all of them had the same belief that you and I do. Not all of them had the same care and love for the Bible and God's Word that you and I do. So I hope that this little uh, streams of the Bibles will kind of help make sense here and, and uh, help you understand, uh, like, you have, you have two streams. One, one's corrupted and has some, some poison in it, and one is pure and clean. And uh, which one do you want to drink from? Obviously, we all want to drink from the, from the pure, untainted one. And uh, that, that goes back to that, that coffee illustration that, uh, that Mr. Gipp did in the first video there. So two streams of Bibles, and uh, hopefully that'll kind of just help you out a little bit. The conflict of two texts at a glance. Um, let me kind of just read through this. The received text, which is, again, where the King James came from. Uh, and that's the uh, green one here. Textual criticism based on belief. So it wasn't... Uh, it wasn't this, I, I, we don't believe in God's word. We don't believe that God has a word here. We're, we're going to, uh, no, this is, we, we believe in God. We believe in his word. We want to make sure we, we're preserving it carefully. And so it's, uh, it's based on belief. There are 5,600 Greek manuscripts, and they, they all give support to this, um, this particular source of text. 30,000 other manuscripts give support. Second century vernacular Bibles support this text. Early church writings and lectionaries support this text based upon, this text is based upon providential preservation. It's guided by believers throughout uh, the centuries. It's, and supporters agree that it is accurate. And I guess they wouldn't, they, they would all say it's accurate because they support it. But um, 
but we'll see here the critical text, the difference. Uh, many uh, or major English translations is the King James Version. All right, the critical text, this is based on unbelief. And we'll see here in a moment as we talk about Westcott and Hort and who they were, what they believed, uh, they were not uh, the guys you would want translating uh, the New Testament. Uh, there was less than 50 Greek manuscripts uh, that give support to uh, this particular text, primarily based upon uh, to disagreeing manuscripts, uh, manuscripts tied to Egyptian corruption. They were accepted by cults and unbelievers, and, and I will throw a little asterisk there. Some cults believe in the King James Version as well, uh, but by and large, cults are very well and glad to accept other versions. Uh, it was developed, the, the critical text was developed in the mid-1800s, so that means that for 1,800 years, God's people didn't have the Bible, evidently, um, if you believe in the critical text. But primarily developed by non-believing, non-Bible-believing men, influenced by German rationalism, supporters disagree among themselves versus agreeing that it is accurate. And it's based upon reconstruction of a supposed lost text. God lost it, but oh, aren't we glad that the people found it, you see. Um, okay, so that's basically, in a nutshell, the conflict between the two texts. I, I, I feel like I didn't do a very great job explaining all of that, but it, there's so much to it, it's hard to, to break it down in a very short amount of time, but um, that's my attempt to do that. All right, let's move on to number two here, the character of the translators. Um, first of all, let's talk about the men, the men who translated the Bible. And uh, first we'll talk about here the King James translators. Who are these guys? And, um, and there, there's some... I'll just kind of read here what, what I have. Uh, for those who translated the authorized version of the King James, a great book has been written already by Terence Brown entitled the, the Learned Men. While some would dispute the spiritual standing of these 57 men, no one would dispute their respect for the Word of God, their education and scholarship, or their belief in the Bible as God's Word. Um, were there flaws with these men? Absolutely. Were there flaws with the original human authors of these Books, uh, yes. Um, Moses uh, was not Mr. Perfect, was he? Paul was perfect, oh, was he? He was a persecutor of the church. You see, um, no one has to be perfect, and, and I don't want that to um, become the emphasis here, but because, but these men, for the most part, had, had great respect for the Word of God, and they believed the Word of God. All right. Consider one example of Lancelot Andrews, the man who oversaw the translation of the King James Bible. Here is uh, some information about him. He had a manual for his private devotions prepared entirely in the Greek language. It was said that he was conversant in 15 languages and that he had been present at the, um, at the Tower of Babel, or, and that had he been present at the Tower of Babel, he would have served as the interpreter general. Uh, because he was just so familiar with language. He was kind of a language expert. And uh, that's probably a good person you want to have on your uh, translation team. 
Uh, John Boyce was another man who worked on this committee, and by the time he was five years old, he could read the Old Testament in its entirety in Hebrew. I was, I was eight, but anyway, um, five years old, that's pretty impressive. Um, okay, I've never actually done that, and I probably never will. At the age of six, he could write the Hebrew language eloquently. I was still eating glue at six. <laughs> so, again, just goes to show, I mean, the intelligence of these guys that God had assembled here. These were remarkable men of their day and highly qualified to handle the task of giving the English world an authorized version. Okay, so that's a little bit about the King James translators, and uh, there's more depth. We could go into that, but that's what we'll do. We'll stop there for, for now and uh, go into uh, these next two guys, Westcott and Hort. Their full names are Brooke Westcott and Fenton John Anthony Hort, the first. I don't know if it was the first, but I think it should. he should have something like that after his name. Um, but let's talk about these guys and, um, and how they compare with uh, those who translated the King James. Westcott, uh, Brooke Westcott, from his own writings in Life and Letters of Brooke Foss Westcott, denied the doctrine of... This is a minor one, right? He denied the doctrine of creation. No biggie. Okay, that's a big one. Here's what he said. Quote, No one now, I suppose, holds that the first three chapters of Genesis, for example, give a literal history. I could never understand how anyone reading them with open eyes could think that they did. Are you kidding me? He doubted the historical existence of Moses and David. Uh, Jackson mentioned David here a moment ago. Uh, well, Westcott would have thought, no, David didn't even exist. Um, he was also vague, if not heretical, in his view of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. However much, here's what he said, however much I may wish to maintain that the resurrection and the ascension are both facts, yet am I forced to admit that they are facts wholly different in kind? And for us, the historical life of the Lord closes, um, closes with the last scene on all of it, though I do not forget the revelations of St. Stephen and St. Paul. Um, so he's like, well, they're facts, but in a different kind of fact. So uh, he was really vague about it, didn't ever just come out and say... Jesus rose from the dead the third day. Okay, on the, on the same subject, he wrote concerning uh, one of the verses here. He said, on, on the other hand, the resurrection of Christ was the raising of the temple, the complete restoration of the tabernacle of God's presence to men, per perpetuated in the church, which is Christ's body. You see, he, he just kind of didn't have the right understanding of the of the resurrection. Okay, Westcott also distorted the doctrine of inspiration. In whatever way God made himself known to them, they were his messengers, inspired by his spirit, not in their words, only but as men. See, he he didn't quite get the fact that God inspired the very words of God. He just said, well, they felt very inspired from God. Do you see the difference? Uh, Westcott uh in his writing, promoted a belief in baptismal generation, 
Um, in uh, 1 John 5 and verse 6, he stated, By his baptism, Christ fulfilled for the humanity which he took to himself, though not for himself, the condition of regeneration. Uh, the condition of regeneration is baptism. Friend, that is heresy. Uh, we talked very clearly this morning about the fact that no amount of religion or religious acts can earn salvation. It's a gift from the Lord. Uh, Westcott uh, also continued to confuse the doctrine of salvation. And I know I'm kind of reading these quotes quick, and, and they're uh, older-type writing, so it's a little harder to understand, but, but bear with me here. All right, Westcott also confused the doctrine of salvation. He continued to do so in this. He said, and, and I quote, If then we may represent suffering as the necessary consequence of sin, so that the sinner is in bondage, given over to the prince of evil, till his debt is paid, May we not represent our, to ourselves our Lord as taking humanity upon him and as man paying this debt, not as the debt of the individual, but as the debt of the nature which he assumed. Wow, closely connected with his view of salvation was his understanding of the doctrine of the atonement. Would it be very well, he said, to point out that there has never been any authoritative theory of the atonement laid down in our church or in any of the historic churches? Uh, the fact that Jesus died for our sins and for the whole world is firmly held, and we endeavor to see what lights this fact throws upon our own state and our relations to, relations to God and man. Now, Hort, that's all Westcott here. Uh, Hort also does not fare much better as you study his position uh, doctrinally. He uh, unequivocally believed in baptismal regeneration. Um, he said, we maintain baptismal regeneration as the most important of doctrines. These are the guys who, um, you know, translated the, and, and created this new Greek text out of all of these corrupted manuscripts. Do you think that they were right down the line? No, they were not. They were extremely off and very far off on a lot of things, and I could keep going here, uh, but I think I think you get the picture, and uh, and uh, we'll go ahead. Oh, and this is this is also important um, to understand. Hort did not believe that the scriptures were infallible. Here are his own words about this particular subject. If you if you make a decided conviction of the absolute infallibility of the New Testament, practically a uh, an essential for cooperation, I fear I could not join you. If you, in order to join your group and you have to agree that the New Testament is uh, infallible, then I, I just don't know I can subscribe to that. Like, this is the guy that's doing this? He said, I fear I could not join you even if you were willing to forget your fears about the origin of the Gospels. I am most anxious to find the New Testament infallible and have a strong sense of the divine purpose guiding all its part, but cannot see how the exact limits of such guidance can be ascertained. And uh, there's more here that I could, I could say, but you get the idea that these guys were not, uh, not the right people to be doing this. All right, and one more person I want to mention is uh, S. Franklin uh, Logsdon. And uh, he, this guy was part of the... Um, uh, he was on the committee of translating uh, from the, this Greek 
uh, the critical text into the New American Standard Bible. And this is back uh, not, not too far ago. Uh, this is within uh, many of our lifetimes. Here's what he had to say when he kind of got done with it all. Um, he says, as a member of the editorial committee in the production of the Amplified New Testament, we honestly and conscientiously felt it was a mark of intelligence to follow West Cotton Hort. Now what you have in these books strikes terror to my heart. It proves alarmingly that being conscientiously wrong is a most dangerous state of being. God help us to be more cautious lest we fall into the snares of the arch deceiver. And then he later wrote to um, this, this guy he was writing to about his feelings toward the New American Standard Bible. He said, Duke, think of it conceivably by virtue of circumstance. I was in a position to have prevented the publication of the New American Standard Bible. I'm definitely certain I could have had I had in my possession the facts I now possess. If I could have read to Dewey Lockman that the enclosed paper when he called me out there to help him lay the groundwork for the New American Standard Bible because he was so exceedingly conscientious and so desirous of honoring God and his word, he most surely would have not launched forth in it. And then he goes to say this, I may be in trouble with the Lord. I didn't know, but I should have known to qualify for so important and so serious a matter of putting out a volume and calling it God's word. These statements came from a man on the committee to produce the New American Standard Bible, and after researching issues of texts and translations, his final conviction was that the King James Bible was the authoritative Word of God. So these are the men uh, that uh, we want to just kind of highlight and give you a little snippet. Uh, again, there's a lot more we could talk about, much, much more, but we'll uh, move on here to, to letter B, the method the character of the translators, so we see the character of the men, and now let's look at the character of the method. Two methods in which uh, really all, most of these uh, translations come from, first of all, is formal equivalency, and we mentioned this briefly in the first message. This is word-for-word -word translation, going from word, uh, whatever it says in the Greek or the Hebrew, and going what, what's the equivalent word there in English. And by the way, this is what uh, the King James was, this is the method in which the King James was translated is word for word. Number two, or yeah, is dynamic equivalency, and this is thought for thought. A lot more creative license with this particular method. And uh, this is what like the NIV has been used, the, um, the message Bible. Uh, some of you might be familiar with that one. They use dynamic equivalency, basically taking the gist of what the originals have to say and kind of making it what it means sort of in English. But uh, Matthew chapter 4 and verse number 4 says this, He answered and said, Jesus did, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by, anybody know the next two words? every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So when you look at that verse and understand that we live by every word that proceedeth, every word is important, not just the gist, not just the main thought, 
but every word is important. I was reading this in my study here. The NIV translators examined each passage three times. And it kind of went through three, uh, three checks before it was allowed. Uh, but you compare that to the King James translators, and they examined each passage no less than 14 times. Uh, see, there was a lot more care and attention and uh, appreciation for what they were doing uh, as they translated uh, this. All right, let me, uh, me kind of wrap it up here with number three. Uh, some common questions. First question here is uh, that I wanted to bring up is, what's up with all the italics? <laughs> uh, maybe you've been reading your Bible and, and you see some words in italicized and you're like, are those for emphasis? I mean, why are those there? Well, I'll just tell you in a nutshell, um, when you're translating a document from one language into another, no matter what language it's going to be, there's going, you're not going to be able to do that word for word without having to add a couple to make the sentence flow in that new language. Um, last night, just to give you an example, Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, if you want to turn over there just really quickly, we were reading that together as a family during uh, family Bible time, and, and we came to Romans, uh, Romans 8 and uh, verse number 1. It starts with two italicized words. There is, therefore, now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. The reason that there, uh, the King James added uh, the italicized here is because there is was not in the original language. And so they were being honest and put these words in to make the sentence flow, to make it work in the English language. But they didn't just make it look like the, all the others. They italicized them to indicate that they are not in the original language. And uh, that, that's throughout the New Testament and, and even the Old Testament. And so that's what it means there. Um, back to... Uh, the example I gave at the very beginning uh, where Elhanan, uh, he slew the brother of Goliath, the Gittite. If you noticed in the King James, the word the brother of was italicized. And so they added that in there. And were the King James, I know what the King James translators were doing. They were just trying to like cover their, cover themselves and make sure that there was not a contradiction in their version of the Bible, and so they added that in there. Well, actually, if you go to First Chronicles chapter twenty and verse number five, I'm trying to go through this quickly tonight, but um, but I think that this is this is profitable. First Chronicles twenty and verse number five. This is the parallel passage to that Second Samuel passage. It says in verse number 5, And there was war again with the Philistines, and Elhanan, the son of Jair, slew uh, Lahami, the brother of Goliath, the Gittite. So here in this passage, in the King James, none of this is italicized. So in the original language, the words, the brother of Goliath, were found here 
in 1 Chronicles 20 and verse number 5, but in uh, 2 Samuel 21, 19, the words, the brother of, were missing. Is there a contradiction? No. It's just for some reason that scribe left out that word, the brother of, but uh, the King James went back and saw, oh, in verse number 5, the brother of is in the original, so... Let's add that here because we know in 1 Samuel 17, it was David who killed Goliath. Do you see? Uh, That's why the italicized words are in the King James. And that's what the deal is there. All right, another question here. And uh, we kind of answered this a little little bit last week, but I want to just hit it again. Uh, The King James Version versus the New King James Version. And again, a lot of people think that they're really the same type of scenario, uh, just without the these and the thous and some of the archaic language. Um, actually, uh, that's not exactly true. Uh, according to William Grady's book, uh, Final Authority, which is this one right here, A Christian's Guide uh, to the King James Bible, he said that conservative estimates... Uh, of the total translation changes in the New King James Version are generally over 100,000 different changes over the uh, King James. That's not a little insignificant scenario, is it? It's not just taking the these and the thous out and the yees and the us out or just keeping the us and adding y'alls. No. Um, the... That's a big difference, 100,000 differences. And so if you were to take each page of Scripture, that would be basically taking 80, each page of Scripture, 82 different changes on each page of Scripture. That's how many changes over the King James and the New King James. And you decide if that's a big deal or not. Um, I, I think it's a big deal. Okay, uh, last thought here. Um, well, by the way, well, yeah, let me, uh, let me get to this last thought. Is, isn't the KJV hard to read? And that's a common uh, question and a common reason that people choose a different version is because it's hard to read. Well, the English language reached its literary peak in the early 1600s. While the English language has changed, it has primarily deteriorated since that time. The strength of the English used in the King James Bible is its precision, simplicity, and accuracy. Regarding ease of reading, the King James Bible has a significantly lower average syllable count, making it more accessible to a beginning English reader than any of the newer Bibles. Uh, Recent evaluation shows the reading level of the King James Bible to be fifth grade as a whole. Many individual passages would be much lower than that. The modern Bibles are shown to be between 6th and ninth grade levels as a whole. So the modern versions claim to increase readability when in reality they often make readability more difficult. New versions often use elongated words where the New King James does not, or the King James does not. Consider this list of King James words versus their New King James counterparts. So King James would use the word evil. New King James instead, now I know King James uses some of these words as well, but again, for this argument that 
you know, New King James is easy, easier to read. We've taken out all the archaic language. We've taken out all the hard words. Well, uh, King James uses evil. New King James, adversity, calamity, disaster, catastrophe, distressing. Um, bigger words than just simply evil, okay? What about this one? King James would use house. New King James, habitation. New, or King James is smell. And New King James is savor. You know, I use smell a lot, that word, in my vocabulary. We have four children in our house and a dog. The word smell gets used on occasion. But I don't usually say the word savor. Um, give in the King James to gratify in the New King James. Man in the King James to mortal. Okay, I get that they kind of mean the same thing, but, but do you see we're talking about the readability here? Old in the King James to elderly. Um, I don't know what's more politically correct in those either, but anyway. Uh, bones to limb. Judge to vindicate. Children to descendants. Little rivers to rivulets or rivulets. Uh, box to flask, people to multitudes, ended to concluded, deep to abyss, taken to seized, divider to arbitrator, riotous to prodigal, old men to elders, hell to Hades, judgment hall to praetorium, thoughts to anxieties, throne to residence, stranger to captivity, pictures to slops, fat to verdant. This is just the short list. Um, and uh, we could go on, but uh, I hope that these last little thoughts have been somewhat helpful and somewhat educational. Um, again, please do your own research and uh, your own study on this. There's more to dive in in each of these situations. I'm just giving you really the highlight for sake of time. But uh, the, Bible, uh, the Bible translation issue at a glance, I wanted to kind of give this to you just to help you understand a little bit and simplify it a little bit. And I know that there's a danger in over, oversimplifying the issue, and I, I'm going to kind of, for sake of time, go that direction, but um, there, I encourage you to study it out, and I, and I believe you'll come to the same conclusion, and if you don't, I will love you anyway. King James Version here is translated from the received text. It's formal equivalency translation, word for word. Translators who viewed God's Word supernaturally versus translators who viewed the Bible as any other book. That's a big deal. It was received by English-speaking Christians for 400-plus years, received by many pseudo-Christians. These modern versions have been. This is a big difference here, right? King James, based upon belief in a preserved Word of God, versus modern versions based upon a belief in a restored Word of God. God didn't get it right the first time, so we needed to help him out a little bit. Um, the King James is based on a text dating back to the second century. Modern versions based upon a text developed in the 1800s by individuals who didn't believe in the inerrancy of the scriptures, didn't believe in creation, didn't really get a ha have a good grasp on the resurrection, on salvation by grace alone. 
All right. Uh, King James Version protects key doctrines, especially Christ's deity. Modern versions dilutes or deletes key doctrines, especially Christ's deity. And that, that is one that has always been under attack. And uh, I know that we all kind of have a grasp of it and understand it and accept it. But throughout history, that has been a doctrine that has been under great attack. And uh, these modern translations do dilute that. Uh, they don't necessarily totally get rid of it, but they make it a little less convincing. Uh, King James is a complete record of God's Word. Modern versions, well, ongoing revisions attempting to reassemble God's Word. Fewer symbols, syllables uh, for easier reading. Uh, it would help if I could even read the word syllables. Uh, but uh, modern versions have more syllables for grading re greater reading difficulty. <laughs> King James Version, non-market-driven copyright status. It is copyrighted in Britain, in England, um, I think until 2038, something like that. But uh, the rest of the world, it's public domain. But these modern versions all have copyrights. And uh, why? Because it's all about the old dollar. It's a big business, these Bible translations are. And then the last thing here, marketing doesn't create need for word changes. But in the modern versions, marketing creates need for word changes because what, uh, what these Bible publishing houses want me as a pastor to do is to show their brand new release of their new translation on the screen and say, Cornerstone Baptist Church, there is a brand new translation out, and boy, is it accurate. Boy, is it beautiful. Go out and buy it today. And that's what they want me to do, um, because they want you to buy, 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 buy. Yes, they have good intentions, but ultimately, underlying fact is it's a big, booming business, these modern translations. All right. Let me end like I ended last week, and then we will pray and be dismissed. The Bible version is an important issue. Um, but I would, and I, and I don't want to go against everything I just said here, but, but I would really rather someone who had a modern translation, who sincerely believed it, and took time every day to read it, took time to memorize it, took time to try to understand what it says, and then to try to implement that Word of God, that Bible, into their life. Then I would to have somebody who says, I am King James only. But you know where it sits? On my desk or on my shelf all week long. And I only bring it to church, and I don't ever crack it open, and it's starting to collect dust. Folks, the Word of God is important, but it's only beneficial as if we implement it into our life. So, yes, have the right version, but use it. It does you no good if you don't use it. I don't, I mean, I, I care where you stand on the issue, but, but I, I also care what you do with the Bible. And so I kind of want to get the balance here. Because some people are like, oh, I know all the, all the angles on this issue. Okay, well, do you read the Bible? Well, I read about the Bible. 
I want you to know the Bible, not just simply about the Bible. You see? And so I want to encourage all of us, whatever Bible you have, and I, and I would encourage you to have the King James. I, I, I believe, I'm convinced that this is God's uh, preserved word for the English-speaking people. I'm convinced of that. And I, I hope that you are too. And, but whether you are or not, I would encourage you to take, take the word of God to look at it, to read it, to learn the Bible, to love the Bible, and then most importantly, to live the Bible, to obey it. You may not understand everything about the Bible, but the things that you do understand, obey those. And uh, that is, that is the, the heart of this whole issue. Let's not get too hung up on the, well, I'm better than you because I believe this, or I don't agree with that little statement you made there. Look, let's, let's drop the boxing gloves, let's take them off, and let's just read the Bible. And let's obey the Bible. And uh, with that, let's all stand together. We'll have a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed tonight. Thank you for being here. Thank you for letting me take a little bit longer. But we'll move on to something different next week. Get back into our Baptist Beliefs uh, series. Um, Lord, sure love you tonight. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the promise that you inspired your word and that you would preserve it. And Lord, we really believe that uh, the King James is the preserved word of God. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to not just have the right stand on this issue, but Lord, help us to be people of the book, people who are in the book on a regular daily basis, and that, Lord, you help us to apply the Word of God to our lives and, and live out the Bible. I pray, Lord, that you would just guide and direct in our church. Help us, Lord, to have the right, the right stand and the right spirit in this regard. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.